save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And welcome. This is Our Wild World, and this is Ellie Weiss, and I'm down here in Scottsdale, Arizona, to talk with Linda Searles, who I've been trying to get on record for a while. We had Ron Thompson, her friend uh, and mountain lion biologist, on the program not too long ago. And Linda was so busy she couldn't quite make it for the interview. And today we're going to find out why she's so busy and what she's so busy doing with. So in order to get a hold of her, I came to... Mohammed came to the mountain instead of the mountain coming to Mohammed. And now that I'm here, I can totally understand why. So um, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Linda Searles, my special guest today. Hello, Linda. Hello. Thank you for having me. Or thank you for coming to me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. I think that's the first time I'm going to get to say that on this show. So why don't we start by um, if, telling me a little bit about yourself and your background. And then we'll get into why, what you're doing here and, and what you've shown me today. So let's start with a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a native Arizona and I grew up on a ranch here and so was around wildlife and, and livestock growing up. It's okay. So, We're going to have sounds going on in the okay. background here today. We are in the middle of the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. So um, our listeners, you know, as I said, I'm not in the studio today. We are right here. You're going to hear the birds. We might be really lucky and hear the coyotes and the wolves howls, and uh, you're going to hear the birds chirping. So we're outdoors here today. Go ahead. So we're going to hear some sounds. Just uh, stick with us. So I'm, I'm a native Arizonan. I grew up here on a ranch um, in the livestock industry. I rode out in the wild a lot and, and learned to love wildlife at an early age. I started volunteering um, for a wildlife group in Arizona, Liberty Wildlife, that does primarily birds. And from there I realized that there, there was no place for, for big carnivores, no place for the larger mammals to go. So. That's when I broke out and I started my own Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. And originally it was just rehab. And as I went along, it, our foundation really evolved into being much more. And that's because we realized all those animals coming in were direct conflicts, 90% were direct conflicts with humans. Uh, whether it be power lines or cars or people just not wanting them in their neighborhood or livestock issues. So then we decided it's, it's really important to have education because in order to stop the flow of the rehab, to, to, we just need to educate people because a lot of this was just ignorance. You know, there, it, it could be resolved without the animal being injured or lethally removed. Um, and we could just resolve a lot of these conflicts. So that's where the education part of it. And then also came a lot of animals that came through rehab, especially the confiscated ones, such as mountain lions, where the female was poached and then the kittens were taken as pets and then they were confiscated. And rather than putting perfectly healthy animals down, we thought, well, they have a story to tell. 
and we can be their interpreters. And so that started the Nature Center. And now we have school groups and people come every day and see and learn about the wildlife. And, and we tell their stories, why they shouldn't be here, why they shouldn't be behind chain link, um, and the impact that we humans have and how we can change a lot of that. We have control to change a lot of that. Well, we covered a whole lot of territory right there, so we're going to take this apart a little bit piece by piece. So first off, you mentioned some really big issues. Livestock, livestock. growing up with livestock, mm -hmm. and then the need for, um, so conflict, so there's coming from a livestock background and understanding the conflict that takes place between carnivorous predatory wildlife and livestock. And then there's the education side. And then you talked about rehab. So I'd like to get a little bit into that. So let's start first where, what was your background growing up? Where were the conflicts? You, you probably come from the livestock conflict side where it was being predated. So coming Correct. from that side, how did you go into being, let's say, the wildlife advocate? Well, I, I have love for both. You know, I have... Uh, I, I grew up as a cowgirl on a ranch, and I just don't think there's a better play, better way to grow up. There's just nothing better than being on the back of a horse. Um, but I also love the wildlife, and I didn't know why the wildlife had to die. And, and we also lost, we had sheep ranchers uh, near us. And some of our own dogs, our ranch dogs that were minding their own business, just came across the cyanide traps and smelled the dead carcass and were killed and so we lost some good dogs there. So we're and talking about what wildlife services, what we've covered before on our wild world with right. the cyanide traps right. or did or do livestock ranchers in general set cyanide traps? Um, I think it was mostly wildlife services back okay. then but you know that was pre-Nixon, that was before a lot of those products were banned or at least controlled. Um, so I just, I just didn't know why we couldn't resolve some things. And we, all, we also had, as did the other ranchers around us and farmers, practices of, you have some chickens die, you have a cow die, you have a horse die, what do you do? You drag it out into the desert because it takes a lot of time to dig a grave for a cow. And so the common practice was drag it out and then leave it to rot and be eaten by the coyotes. Well, what did we just do? We just trained the coyotes that, geez, this cow meat's awful good. That's what I was just so, going through my head when you said that. I mean, and then we wonder why we have a, a yeah. problem. Well, and we never thought about that. It was just there. We lost a cow in a breech birth, so we had to, you know, we didn't want that up by the ranch house, so we drag it off and leave it in the wash someplace. Um, and we were just, not only we were teaching them to eat it, we were increasing the amount of animals, of, of coyotes in the area because they have this pretty constant source of food. You know, you, as ranchers, you lose livestock to a broken leg and some, you know, oftentimes when you, you lose, in that situation, you lose a horse. It's, it's not a, that valuable of a horse to go spend a hundred thousand, you know, fifty or ten thousand dollars on a surgery. Um, you put them down, and then they're left out there for the predators in the area to feed off of. So now you're just giving them a free source of food, which is 
boosting their population because they can have there can be more predators in that area because it's kind of a there's a pretty constant source of food supply. So we're watching a lot of reality TV shows these days. There's one that's really great, Dr. Pole, and you see him doing his Love thing. Him. But me too. I think he's fabulous. But what you just brought to my mind was. When you're out there and they, oops, that's my, our papers rattling. We're once again outside here in the breeze. So you come along, ranchers and livestock folks, as you just said, and they lose these animals. For some naive reason, I thought they would be processed somehow or that they would use the meat somehow as opposed to, as you just said, um, not go to the expense to dispose of the carcass, but just drag it out and feed wildlife and then wonder why there's a conflict when we bring this up. Well, when, when you're in remote areas uh, or something dies in a remote area, you can't always get attracted to it. Um, you can't always, there might not be a processor for a long ways from you. So it's, it's very time consuming because now you've got to drag that body back someplace or you've got to get a tractor out and dig a hole. You know, that's a half a day, and when you're a farmer or a rancher, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of time lost. But in the long run, it's better, because you're going to have less problems in the long run. But I, we just didn't realize that back then. So your family, did your family or your history, did, was there a lot of conflict with wildlife? Was it a, reta a retaliatory relationship, or was it a coexistent live and live, live kind of relationship? We were pretty coexistent, because we always had, we had a policy of, all the, the cows and the, the um, were to calve up by the ranch where the close to the house and the barn where our dogs were and, and our dogs ran a pretty good perimeter and they wouldn't let the coyotes up on the property and the the mares we all sold them out so and then we didn't put them back out to pasture until they were good size and strong um, and and far less you know uh, susceptible to predators and healthier you know you after a, a cow can have a breech birth a mare can have a problem as well so you want to ensure your livestock is safe it's it's good to have them up where you can get to them and you can help pull a calf like like dr pole does you know i see his arm up to his in a cow uh, many a time and you know we've been there done that and if if you're not there when that happens you're going to lose that. She's not going to be able to give birth to that calf, and then she's going to die too. Uh, so you're definitely so, up to your armpits in it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we've got a few minutes here until the break. So um, you briefly touched on how the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center began. What was your first animal? My first animal uh, was a coyote puppy. A coyote puppy that had... Um, Farmer had gone over with the thrasher, and he'd gone over the den, and everybody was killed but this one little pup. So he took him home and started raising him, and then he gave him to some friends, and then they didn't they didn't feed him properly, and then he became, you know, what he was, a coyote. And then mom decided that wasn't a very good pet to have and kind of smelly, so I ended up with him, and he had um, nutritional cataracts. He was pretty blind from not being able to, not having the right proper diet. So I ended up raising him and I, I had him for um, nearly 20 years Wow! before he passed away. And so he was, he taught me a lot and we used him for education. And What's the normal lifespan of a coyote in the wild? 
oh, maybe three, four years. They make the they make the first year most you lose about fifty percent the first year the puppies either starve to death or get killed. Um, if they make it past a year, then they'll probably make it to three or four, maybe five. But you, you don't see a lot of old coyotes in the wild. And what we've been talking about a lot over the past in our wild world is, you know, a lot of the processes of the coyote killing contests and what that does in terms of uh, doesn't reduce populations, it actually increases population. So from that one coyote pup, you've got how many animals now today? Probably have anywhere, depending on what time of the year, when we have a lot of babies in in the spring and the fall, uh, any 300, 350. 350 like animals here. We have a, a sustaining population of education animals that is well over 100. And then we have the incoming wounded. And, you know, we're, we're kind of like a mass unit. There's always something going on every day. Something's coming in, something's going out. Wow. This is Ellie Weiss with Our Wild World and my special guest today, Linda Searles. And we also have another fun uh, surprise. Uh, my executive producer, Brandy Jackson, just showed up. So she's getting her first taste of the real thing and Our Wild World firsthand. So hopefully she'll come back with a few comments. But right before the break, Linda, we were talking about um, uh, your first animals that came in and they were... Uh, a rescue, so to speak. Yes. You rescued a coyote. Yes. So um, from one coyote to, you said how many now? Um, how many animals you have here at the center? Uh, between 300 and 350. Our numbers are higher in the spring and the summer when the orphans come in. And then we start releasing in the fall, so then our numbers drop. So. Okay, so you don't breed here. We do not, we do not breed. Okay, so... Everybody, um, the animals that are going out that are rehabbed are left as they came. Um, we don't we don't alter those. Now all permanent residents are spayed and neutered because we don't need to add to the the captive population. We don't need more bears. Um, we don't need more mountain lions in captivity. Um, the Mexican gray wolves are a different story because they are an endangered species. So we're going to save the Mexican gray wolves for our okay. a special little section all okay. on its own because what you're doing here in the Mexican gray wolves are um, pretty particular and is I understand it you're one of the few licensed permitted uh, not only resource centers but research and wildlife centers that breed are part of the Mexican wolf breeding right. program right. so uh, since I brought it up let's let's go there so tell us about that the Mexican wolf breeding program um, well we don't actually breed here what we do here is we recover oocytes from females and semen from males from the ones that are the most important reproduction. Um, they're, they're the highest ranking of the genetic importance in the wolves. And the reason we have to do that is because the releases have been very slow. You can only, if you continue to breed at a rate that we really should be breeding at, we don't have enough outlet to let them go. So then facilities end up with too many wolves and they can't be released, so that means you've got to slow your breeding down. And a wolf's reproductive years are only so long. So some of these wolves, we want to be able to, to we want to capture those genetics for years to come. So that's why it's important to have the semen and the oocytes banked for future. This is amazing. Okay, 
every time you say something and I ask sort of a naive question sometimes, and I, I'm pretty familiar with wildlife and what's going on, but you keep blowing me away. So we have the Mexican wolf genetics, and you just said, but we have no place to put the wolves, right? right. The, so we can breed them more than we have places to keep them. And is that because of conflicts? With the Mexican wolf? You know, we, we, it, w it would be nice, it would be really helpful to the program if we could release more, get more out there. And where, there's how many, last I heard there were like 15 or 17 Mexican wolves in the wild? There actually were around 70 now. Okay. Give or take some, because it's uh, other season, so. I don't. I don't know what the numbers are currently out there, but but um, it's, it's 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 better. It's better than it's ever been. But not at the point where we could call it a recovered population. I think we have to be to a hundred before we can. A hundred. A hundred animals, and that's considered animals. recovered. Yeah, that that was our goal. Wow. That seems very low numbers to me. And then also Mexico is. Um, they don't have any in the wild. They've released some, um, but have uh, been killed. So I know they have some more releases planned in the future, and hopefully someday Mexico can sustain and, and we can have have them back in their 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 territory where they historically were. And it's hard Mexico. to know what's going on in Mexico in in a lot of the land down there because yeah. of the drug cartels and the international crime rings and all of that that's going on, which is also part of the wildlife trade and traffic areas. So we've also covered a lot of discussions on that lately. So um, we. You took me through the center today, and um, first off, I would urge anybody who's coming through Scottsdale, Arizona, to come by the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center because it's not only a beautiful place, but you will get um, closer to some wildlife that you may never have experienced or may have just had a fear of or heard out there in the wild, but here you get to see them. So who to all did we see today? Who were the mountain lions we saw today? We saw Tocho, the mountain lion, um, who's one of our favorites among everybody. He's a big old... Beautiful character. boy. Beautiful boy. And you met Cleo. Um, Cascabel didn't, didn't grace us with her presence. She was taking a nap. And then you met Ash, the two-year-old mountain lion. Beautiful. Um, he's a beautiful boy. And uh, you met Giselle with her pretty blue eyes. And <laughs> So I'd like, you have a Facebook page? Yes, we do. Okay, and so I'd like you to all check Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center, SWWCC, on Facebook. You also have a website. Yes. And what's it's that website? www.southwestwildlife.org. Uh, so check that out, and then also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and I'll be posting some of the uh, portraits I got of some of the critters here today, these beautiful animals, and um, the bobcats are here. So we got a, a chance to, to enrichment day. So um, there were a lot of little mouse-sicles and a couple of rabbit-sicles and a couple of chick-sicles out there. So um, that brings us to a point in terms of our industrialized food processing. So, in animal rights, we have a lot of problem today with people saying no animals should die or be raised just for us to eat. But let's think about this in terms of carnivores and predators. This is what they need to eat. So, um, we were talking earlier and you brought up a point that I hadn't quite considered in terms of the impact of our industrialized food processing, livestock, agriculture on the wildlife populations around here. I know 
the impact it's having on our planet and on us as people, but let's talk a little bit about the impact it's having on wildlife. Well, <clears throat> we have um, wildlife services that, that kills a lot of wildlife for, for ranchers and farmers. Um, and in some time, in some, such as coyotes, it can actually, within a short period of time, cause an increase in the coyotes, rather, because they, they kick up their reproductive. Um, new animals move into the area and they start reproducing at a faster rate. So, and, and also, sometimes you take, you just indeterminately just take out a mountain lion because it's a mountain lion or a wolf because it's a wolf, and it's not the one that's causing the predation problem. You may have had one there that was eating what he should eat. He wasn't eating cattle. He was eating deer. He really wasn't a problem. And now when you take that animal out that wasn't offending, you open the door, the vacuum, for others to move in that could be or are offending animals. Or so, may not have been offending animals mm -hmm. and then thus become one. Become one. And you, you orphan... Um, it's, it's going to, any animal at an earlier age, they're going to look to more vulnerable animals because they're not skilled hunters and they were not taught by their parents. So they just haven't learned the skills to be efficient hunters. And therefore, that's when we'll get them that are hanging around a, a residence. Um, you know, somebody finds them by their goat pen or their chicken pen. And if mom was around, that wouldn't be a problem. But when they've been orphaned, now they're just looking for whatever they can get to just try and survive. Uh, so it's, it's really important that they stay with their mothers. And when you, when you orphan, take out the mother bear, then the cubs are forced to either starve to death or if, if humans are around, they're going to find So we just end up increasing the problem. In increasing the problem. I mean, I understand problem animal control. That's... That's, mm -hmm. I mean, when you know this animal has predated on your livestock, and I understand that, working in Africa and working here, but just willy-nilly going out and killing what's out there just because it's in proximity. It can make your situation worse. It really, it really can make your situation worse. You need to be sure that that's the offending animal and not just take out any animal because you could be taking out the one that's that's really helping you, you know. They're doing the right thing and they're not preying on your livestock. And there's a lot of things we can do to protect our livestock. Like I said before, bring them in when they're gonna calf, um, give them protection. Uh, guard dogs are great. Burrows and llamas are great for yeah. smaller livestock. Burrows and llamas? Burrows and llamas. How does that yeah. work? Well, I've, I've, I have chickens that kind of free roam, they're in an area, and um, the, the raccoons could climb over the fence if they wanted, uh, but they don't dare with my burrows because they see a coyote or a raccoon or any kind of predator get in their pen. They just come at them, ears pinned, and they'll kill them. So chickens, chickens have learned to sleep with the burrows at night. <laughs> I also noticed you have one rescue or rehab um, wolf. He's got three legs. She has three legs, yeah. Tell us his story. Oh. Oh, we've just found a snake, so this is interesting. What kind of snake have we got here? Sidewinder. We've got a little... No, it's a We've got a little diamondback rattler. So, as I said, here on Our Wild World, things get wild. And um, so, K2 
Ken has just released the Sidewinder not too far from me, so I'm backing up. And uh, he's slinking off into the sun, so I assume he's looking for a shady place. So stick with us. This is our wild world. We're in uh, outside of Scottsdale, Arizona at the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center with Linda Searles and a Sidewinder. So we're going to take a little break, so stick with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787 Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787 Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. So Ken is right now packaging a um, sidewinder into a big bright pink bucket. Linda's backed off and uh, <laughs> this is the most interesting use of barbecue tongs I think I've ever seen. Every time I come to your place there's a crisis. I'm like, welcome to Southwest Wildlife. We're like a match unit. There's just always something crazy going on here. So I'd, I'd like you all to know now that uh, the sidewinder that Ken just um, corralled is now sitting in this bucket, not less than three feet from me, about a foot and a half from Linda. So 
Um, I have to say my, my knees have definitely curled up together and here I am a wildlife person. And I know I'm safe, but it's, it's it, now I know what other folks go through when they are really scared of something. And there it is, because I'm not much of a snake person and there's a snake right there. So that was exciting. So um, once again, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm not quite sure where we left off. We were talking about the, uh, the three-legged wolf here. Tell us his story. Um, she was, uh, you know, from the exotic pet trade, somebody, you know, bred her, had her as a pet. Um, she must have been running loose in an area and somebody was setting traps. And we got a call from some folks that said they had a, a wolf in a trap. And when she'd gone through their fence, the trap had, had hung up on the fence. Um, whatever trapper had put the stake in, she was able to pull the stake out. So she was running free with the trap on her foot. And then when she went through these people's yards, she got it caught in their fence. And so we sent some volunteers out to pick her up, and then they took her to our veterinary hospital. And they said, there's, there's no saving the leg. It's all necrotic and gangrene. So they amputated it. So she wasn't even a wild wolf. She was... She belonged to somebody. Yeah, she wasn't a, a wild wolf. So this just goes to highlight some of the other issues that we have with the captive wildlife issue and the exotics pets. And as Linda had said earlier, wildlife does not make good pets. So just to reiterate, none of the animals here, well, okay, um, I, I should maybe not say none of them. A lot of them are pretty friendly, but they are not pets. They are right. wild animals. In fact, we just came across, um, Linda was showing me a um, bobcat that's recently come in that, uh, tell us about the bobcat that is over there in quarantine right now. He's some of, they had, these individuals had purchased him from a breeder uh, in Montana and then they brought him back here because they thought it would be cool to have a bobcat as a pet. And they kept him indoors, so as a kitten, he didn't get enough sunlight. They didn't feed him the proper diet, which is, uh, we see this so much. Um, so he had metabolic bone disease, just basically osteoporosis from not a proper diet and not enough calcium and not the proper vitamins. And they kept him in a dog crate, a metal dog crate. Well, he got his legs stuck in the metal dog crate and he broke three of his legs. And so they had one failed attempt to try and fix one of the legs. And then they, they called us after they'd had him for two years and said, well, we just we can't take care of him anymore. So they turned him into us. And our, our surgeons have <clears throat> looked at him and they're not sure that they can go in and repair those because they're so, they happened so long ago and they've, the way they've healed. Um, so we had to put, take weight off of him because he was also obese and they had declawed him. So, you know, he's, he's one that will never be in the wild and he should never, he should never have been born. You know, we're going to do the best to give him the best life we possibly can. But it's, it's just wild animals should not be bred in captivity to be somebody's pet, to be in a cage. And eventually they... Uh, they always seem to lose the novelty and then they become a problem. They're smelly, they bit the kids. Um, they're not behaving like a domestic animal and creating problems. And 
Also, they declaw them and take their canines out because they want them to be safe. Well, they're, they're still not safe, but it's also just a terribly cruel thing to do to take their canines out and their, and their claws out. Well, it's like yeah. trying to turn an animal into the stuffed toy that it represents exactly. Exactly. as opposed to accepting the animal for what it is and the capabilities that it has. I mean, it's got weapons, it's got teeth, it's got claws because that's what it needs to survive. So we take that away from it and we're saying we still love this animal and its exoticness, but we're really not letting it be the animal it can be. No, we're not. We're, we're altering its behavior, we're altering it physically because we want it to be what we want it to be, as you said. And they, it, it's that some people, I found that it's uh, an ego booster, that they can control a wild animal, they have a wild animal. Others, it's, um, you know, sort of like nobody else accepts me, but this wild animal does. Um, and some, it's just, they, they can be different. They're different because they have a bobcat as a pet, or they have a wolf as a pet. And 99% and of the time, it doesn't work out. And we get so many phone calls that we have a wolf, or we have a wolf hybrid, or we have a bobcat, and we're moving. We can't take care of it any longer. And that it's, you know. So we really need to think, and you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth here, so to speak, from Linda Searles. Um, wildlife is wild. It's not ours to have pets. It's called an exotic trade. We really need to put a halt to the exotic pet trade. So stick with us. Um, once again, we're at the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center outside uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Please check out their website at Southwest Wildlife Conservation Southwest Wildlife .org. Southwest Wildlife .org and follow them on Facebook and also follow us on Facebook or our Twitter page where I'll be posting some of the images of the fascinating, fabulous, wonderful animals that really shouldn't need to be here. So we've talked about the three-legged wolf that was a pet who got loose and ended up uh, caught in a trap that was set for wildlife, other members of his kind. And you've got um, some mountain lions here. So we're, we're you're treading sort of a fine, not you, um, we people are setting sort of a fine line between the wildlife and pets. And this is what happens. The center sort of ended up as a need because of exotic trades and animals that as you were talking about, are surrendered or confiscated. How often does that end up happening? Yeah, the evolution of Southwest Wildlife into being a, a sanctuary as well um, is, is because of the exotic pet trade. It, it, and it's because of people wanting to take animals out of the wild. Some buy them online, some buy them out of a catalog. Um, some of them just go out and take them out of the wild. Uh, that's where the sanctuary came in because we get so many animals in that um, have been raised in a house and they don't, they're imprinted and they don't even relate to their own kind. So it's very, it's, they just don't even want to be with their own kind. They don't get along with their own kind. They don't speak the same language. We were talking about that, you know, that animals, dog, dog training, uh, gentling a horse or training a dog, you really need to understand their body language. They are talking to each other just because we don't understand what they're saying. They certainly understand what each other is saying. But as you were just pointing out, when we 
interfere with that mm -hmm. process. We really have a tendency to make a mess of wildlife. We do. When, when there's that critical period when they start to hear and they start to see, they open their eyes that they're learning from their parents. And if they don't have that, then the, the window for that learning opportunity closes at some point and they don't know how to live in a pack. They don't know how to relate. If it's a lion, they don't know how to relate to another lion. Um, so once that's happened, many of those animals can't be rehabbed and put back into the wild. They end up staying in captivity because they'll, they'll just end up on somebody's back porch and they'll, they'll either hurt somebody or they'll be killed because people think, well, that, that coyote or that bobcat is not behaving normally. Huh, so they figure it's a wild animal when it really could have just been somebody's pet who got away and they just don't know what to do. So we, we people, we humans, we have a huge impact. We've covered a lot on our wild world of the impacts that we have on wildlife, but this is a, an issue here that we haven't covered that uh, much on this program. The impact that we have as Linda was just saying, in terms of removing wildlife, trying to make it ours, and as you were just saying, which when you think about it, is really pretty astonishing that we're altering, affecting animals that really shouldn't have to be here, and we're changing them for us, and then we give them up. Exactly. Yeah. Happens every day. Every day. Every day. Yeah. So you we just advocate, you know, if you really want a pet, go to the, your local shelter and adopt one. Get a but dog, get, get a, a dog, cat. Get a dog, get a cat. But a bobcat in your house is just not a good idea. A serval in your house is not a good idea. Well, that it's bring, not fair to the animal. It's not, it's not good for you. That brings me to the, uh, the, the savannah cat, which the is the breed dog. of the serval and um, I forget what else. But people want that because they want that taste of the wild. They want to be able to touch that wild. But trust me, folks, really like trust me, folks, having a wild animal as a pet, the novelty, as Linda said, wears off very, very quickly. Um, within three months, they have teeth, they have weapons, and it's not that they're looking to hurt you. It's just that they know this is what they know how to use is what they've got. And we're just doing a lot of harm. This is Our Wild World with Linda Searles at the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. So um, where we'd like to go now is we've covered the issue of what happens when we decide to take wildlife under our wing for the best intentions that we think it would make a good pet or that we're rescuing it. Um, it usually ends up needing a lot more care and um, quality of life than we as a person could give it. It's not a pet. So let's talk a little bit more about wildlife conflict and how we're dealing with that. We started out with livestock and uh, the whole issue of conflict with wildlife. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about where we could go as wildlife control, as a species, as human, in terms of learning to get along and reducing conflicts. Well, you, you know, you, we have species of interest, species that we want to hunt, and we don't, we don't want the predators taking those out because we want our share of those. So that's, a, that's an issue, um, just like the livestock, that we want to go in there and remove those predators so we have more species of interest to hunt and we, we have less losses of our livestock. 
but I, we really need to move away from lethal removal. We, we need to, we have a lot of tools in the toolbox for resolving wildlife issues. There's a lot of husbandry practices that we can do to resolve wildlife conflict issues. And there's a lot of very promising research that we're on the cusp of for resolving wildlife conflicts. There's no one tool that's going to resolve everything. But we just need to develop more and we need to start using the tools that we now have in the toolbox to resolve wildlife conflict issues and stop the lethal removal. We don't need to be poisoning, we don't need to be trapping or snaring, we don't need to be killing these animals that are just doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to take down the elk, they're supposed to keep the population healthy. Um, the studies in Yellowstone were so important to show that you brought the aspens back when you had the wolves because the wolves were moving the hoofstock, they're moving the elk so they're not grazing in one spot and depleting and denuding everything. That ecology of fear mm -hmm. we've talked about before. I recently took a trip through, um, and then through New Mexico and Texas and it was so astonishing when you would drive through one area and you would see the fences up and the cattle fat and the grass is good and you drive a few miles more and you would see the, the grass was gone, it was just there wasn't even roots left, it was just dirt, it was bad looking cattle, the trees, the fences knocked down and the trees denuded of foliage as high up as the cattle could, could get to. And it was just classic example of this rancher is managing his land properly and this rancher is not. So it's not even just a case of, okay, so here we're talking about something we haven't brought up before either. Cattle ranching denuding the landscape and then there's wildlife uh, populations, the ungulates, that denude the landscape. Mm -hmm. So we've got two slightly different things going on here. So when we, let me see if I've got this clear, when we have too many cattle on a place and we remove the carnivores, we're doing as much damage in terms of biomass included mm -hmm. to the landscape. So now let's talk about wildlife. Uh, in terms of the ungulate population. You had said something absolutely stunning to me the other day in an email, um, the bighorn sheep and mountain lion conflict that's going on. I had somehow assumed when learning of the bighorn sheep reintroduction and species survival plan that this was to bring the bighorn sheep population back up. But no, why are they being brought up? Well, they're an important game species. They're a real important trophy animal, and they bring in a lot of money. Um, and that's not to say that I'm against that, uh, but it's, it's, it's a really difficult balance when you're going to bring this species back, and now you're going to have to remove, lethally remove a lot of lions to do it. And the public has a real hard time grasping why you're killing one to to have the other so that we can go out and hunt it. I think the public has a hard time grasping it because they don't understand that we're just bringing it up as an unbalance for hunters, one specific vested group. Well, yes, granted, they put a lot of money into fees, but it's game management versus wildlife management. Would you say they're two very different things? Yeah, I would, I would say they're two very... And, and, 
they're very different things, but they they can they they could be in balance. Right. I mean, uh, if we use some tools um, such as conditioned taste aversion, and so instead of removing those lions, we treat those carcasses. You treat a carcass of of a bighorn sheep that a lion took down. You've got a radio collar on the lion. You know he was there. You know he stayed there for 24 hours. He fed on that. So, and you know he's going to feed on that for a few days. So, is it difficult? Yes. You're going to have to. Somebody's going to have to backpack in there, and they're going to have to lace that carcass um, to treat that lion. And then that lion's going to come back, and he's going to feed on that carcass, and he's going to be like you and I. And we've uh, had a bad tuna sandwich. We or? had a bad tuna sandwich, and he's going to be just miserable for six to eight hours and he's gonna like I never want to see another tuna sandwich as long as I live. And you can learn more about conditioned taste aversion at www.wildeyes.org and by listening to Ron Thompson who we had on a little while ago on the episode called uh, The Sledgehammer Effect and why it just doesn't work along with some of our other guests Camilla Thompson and Dr. Robert Crabtree. We're talking about similar issues here. There is a whole lot dealing with coexistence and a lot to think about in terms of public perception. So um, in terms of the outreach that you do here, you not only do to the general public, people coming in, but do you also do outreach to local ranchers, livestock, and, and uh, let's say U.S. Fish and Wildlife or the, the, the government researchers? What Do you also do outreach there by learning from these animals? That you have here? Uh, you know, we've we've talked to them, um, but we we have do not we haven't been doing any outreach with them. We we work with them on different projects. We've discussed it, and it's 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 something that's, you know, our world is quickly shrinking, and our weather our our whole world is changing really rapidly, and we're just really going to have to to really work hard to catch up with it because the public doesn't want to see the, all this lethal removal. Um, we've got conflict problems now. The conflict problems are going to be worse in the future. How so? How so? Well, because our, our, ha our, our weather is changing, so we're having more drought. We're having more issues with that. Um, we're also, the, the climate is changing. We're seeing baby animals come in at odd times a year. I, I could used to be able to pretty much predict when we would get our first coyote puppy in and when we would get our first bobcat kitten in. Um, and I, I can't really predict that anymore. And the birds start having their young earlier at odd times of the year. It's just really kind of mixed up. But also our population, there's more people, we're developing more land. So there's more and more fractured habitat. In order to get from the mountains here, in order to get from the McDowell's down to the river, they have to go right smack through. Those lions have to go right through people's neighborhoods. They have to, in order to get to water. So do the deer. It's, it's just amazing. So here we are in our wild world. You're hearing it straight from uh, Linda Searles at the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. You can find them on Facebook and you can find them online at southwestwildlife.org. And I would say if you're anywhere within the Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, 
neighborhood or even I drove two days to get here so it's well worth a visit. The center is a stunning place. It's beautiful and you'll get a taste of uh, some wild right right here in Scottsdale. So we were talking more about non-lethal removal methods and uh, wildlife issues that are happening. What are some of the issues that you're finding here? You talked about climate change and change in weather that are having noticeable effects in your lifetime within the last few years happening here. What are some of the um, more conflicts and issues that you're finding here as this particular neighborhood, as we talked about earlier, gets more into a bedroom community, more people, and wildlife coming through? What are some of the problems that you're hearing about or, or that you think are coming up more and more? We get a lot of, uh, probably our two top calls are complaints about bobcats and coyotes. Um, the, the bobcats, you know, the, the urban areas really are great for them. We've got golf courses covered with rabbits. They've got ponds. People have fountains in their backyard. Um, so there's, there's a lot of prey. And when, when there's a lot of prey and there's water and there's everything they need, then their range just shrinks because they don't have to go as far. Uh, so we get a lot of people say, calling and saying, I have a mountain lion in my backyard. And so we say, okay, now describe it from head to tail. <laughs> and it's 90% of the time, it's a bobcat. Um, but, and they always think they're bigger than they are. I was yeah. surprised. It's like it was a 100-pound bobcat. <laughs> no, no. You know, maybe 16, 70 pounds, but our bobcats in Arizona are pretty small. They are tiny. When I saw them, that's the first thing I said, they're so tiny. And... Um, so and when you just said something really, really important, you d when we start building in these areas, mm -hmm. and Scottsdale and Phoenix is a really, really prime example of these sprawled out bedroom, low profile communities, but they're so attractive. You just they're very to, attractive. You yeah. just, I mean, to not just us, we make them so attractive for wildlife. We we create oases in the Sonoran Desert. And they move in. And, and you know, we can live together. You just keep your pets on a leash. We have uh, issues with javelina attacking dogs. Majority of the calls that I get, I would say 99.9%, .9 the dog was off a leash. You keep, the javelina isn't gonna seek your dog out, but if they're there and your dog runs after them and they've got young, they're gonna stand and fight and they're gonna come back. And your dog's gonna get the short end of the stick. So. Keep your pets on a leash, keep your kitties in the house, um, and we can all coexist together. And what about fences? Fences, coyotes and bobcats can jump over those fences real easy. So we suggest if you have cats, have an outdoor like kind of aviary for them. This also keeps the birds. One of the leading predators on our native bird species are domestic house cats. I was reading about that. Yeah. We're losing something, several Per cat, something like there's several million cats, multiply that, and each cat is taking something like 5.6 birds per day. Multiply that by several million billion cats, and we're losing billions and trillions of birds. So when you want to think about the freedom of your animal and letting your dog run off the leash or let your cat out the door, think about its impact on wildlife, yeah? There was a great study done over in California it found that the diversity of bird species was better in areas that had coyotes. Areas that didn't have coyotes 
it was, the, the diversity was very poor. Are we talking urban areas where the coyotes are we're, eating we're talking, cats? We're talking urban areas where, like in the area where I live, there's, we don't have feral cat issues at all because we have a healthy coyote population. Um, so it just is non-existent here. But when you think about it, it's like your cardinals. Their, their home range is larger and you have uh, a lot of uh, non-native starlings. They, they will take up that habitat and really the, uh, harm the, the cardinals on the other native birds. They just kind of come in and take over. They take the nesting spots, they take the food. But when you have coyotes in there, <coughs> and they're keeping the cat populations down. If you take, if one cardinal is lost, a female cardinal is lost, there's not a lot of other female cardinals for that male to find, to mate. So now you've just, you're not gonna have cardinals in that, that range. Wow. They're not gonna reproduce that year. If, if they take a starling that's, you know, there's so many non-native starlings out there. So between the starlings, you know, the non-native population is really a struggle for them. But in the, as far as when it comes to the coyotes, they keep the feral cat population down, which helps the native birds because the cats kill the native birds. So even whether it's a feral cat population or your sweet pet cats, mm -hmm. they're still out there. Cat, domestic cats are hunters. We provide everything they need. We provide their food, we provide their treats, we provide everything they need, but they still love to kill. They're born to kill. But they are born killers. They certainly are, and they're proficient. They're really proficient at it. Um, and they take lizards, so your lizard population goes down. It's it's across the board. The, the, the small the, the small rodents and rabbits and things, and it's it's just not good to have them out there free roaming. Uh, my cats, I'm a cat lover and my cats live in the house and cat owners often don't think about when your cat is out there, you're also, he's also uh, susceptible to disease, other diseases that are out there that you, we can't even vaccinate for. Um, cars, being hit by cars, being killed by a neighbor's dog, getting in a fight with uh, another cat and getting injured. So. Just, it's just best to keep your cats indoors, happy, healthy. Um, give them an outdoor aviary so they can go in and out. And they, my cats love that. So what we've learned here today is that our wild world is not just something on the other side of the fence. That we do have an impact on it and that we affect it and that it affects us. So once again, Linda and I, we both urge pet owners to be responsible. Um, if you want your cat and your dog to be safe and you live in an urban area where you know there's bobcats and you know there's lions, this is not Central Park in New York. We're on the fringes. Uh, it's not, it, there's even coyotes in downtown LA. So wildlife is adaptable, as Linda was talking about. We invite them into our resources, into our areas, because we provide everything I need, they need, and we need. So um, we just have a couple minutes left here. What would be the thing you would like our listeners to take away today? I think that we need to, to move towards non-lethal removal. We need to look more at that, um, strive for that. 
non-lethal removal of wildlife. Of wildlife. Carnivores. Yeah, carnivores. Um, use the tools that we have and develop more tools and start using them out in the field, trying them out in the field. Um, we've done some of it here testing at Southwest Wildlife. We're really pleased with the results, but it needs to be out in the field now. We need to, to see how it works out in the field. Um, we, and I would just like to see both sides come together more. Are you talking? What are the two sides? Define the those two, two sides. sides. Um, we have the the hardcore ranchers and you know farmers, which I love. I I grew up with them and I love them. Um, and then we have the hardcore conservationists, which I have total respect for many of them. But I just like to see us come more and. Maybe a little compromising and, and um, Maybe let, let the wolves be there, but then let's have more range riders out there to try and keep the wolves away from the cattle. And let's, let's use some of these tools, let's find some new tools. But let's, let's work together because, you know, if we, if we lose the ranching, you know, I don't want to see all that land go into development um, with artificial lakes and golf courses and, and subdivisions. Uh, I hate to see that lifestyle die because it's such a historic important lifestyle but I also want to see our wildlife and I really don't think it has to be one or the other and we have a lot of people out there that feel it has to be my way or nothing and it, it just doesn't have to be we just we just need to sit down and work it out so there is room for conservation there's room for wildlife there's room for ranching and there's room for animal rights, animal welfare. What we have yes. to do is find the things we all have in common and work from there. And, and we, have to, we have to think about each individual wild animal. As an individual, we also have to think of them as a species. And that's, that's the tough part. That's when, the tough part. That's a, that's a tough part. It's, um, but as you just said, it doesn't have to be all one or the other. It's not a one sh shoe fits all, right. one size fits all. And they're, they're not just things out there. They, they have cognitive thought. Animals have cognitive thought. We thought for a long time that they, you know, they didn't think they just reacted and they were just pre-programmed. But they're not. It's not all they're, just instincts. There's actually something going there's on behind those eyes. You just ask any of my keepers that work with these guys, and they get outsmarted all the time. You know? Well, I can tell you when I was looking at the lions and they were looking at me, I can't say I know what was going on, but I know something was going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're thinking. They're thinking. So I'd like to thank you so much, Linda. It's been thank a pleasure you. being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming here. I'm glad you <laughs> got to see the facility and talk about all the craziness. You know, rattlesnakes. And we never know what's going to happen. <laughs> so that's just it. Our wild world brings the, world, the wild world to you. And, yes, I do go out on the road, and that's the only way I was going to catch this woman. So I'd like to thank you so much. So tune into Our Wild World, and we'll see you again next week. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>